Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Worship the Lord our God with you here in this place which God has separated and set apart for His glory and service. And so we have been going over the book of Hebrews. We took a quick break last week because uh, most of us were at a retreat. I heard great things here in Teaneck that happened while we were there, uh, namely two babies being introduced to our congregation. So once again, I want to welcome them. And it is once again a joy to be back here at home base and worship the Lord with you. And so as we begin this time, uh, let us start with a prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that we can come to this place of learning, come to this place of worship. We pray that you would open our ears and our hearts as we come before you. May your Holy Spirit illumine to us your word that we may not be bereft or left hungry, but that we may be filled by the bread of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we are going to really go over the first 10 verses, but I wanted to read up to 14 this morning, and then we'll do 11 to 14 again in continuation of part 2 in next week. But let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. You can find a pew Bible, which is in the seat underneath in front of you, on page 945. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls 
and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, this is part one of a two-part sermon series I plan on explaining this chapter. And so I'm going to take a little bit more time to explain the context of what is going on, not only here, but how it relates to our world today. And for that, I would like to ask that you think about the culture war that is raging on right now. Thinking about the culture war that is raging on right now, fundamentally, what are we speaking of? Fundamentally, aren't we speaking on what is sacred? And I hope you're not surprised by the statement I just made. Once secularists, meaning people who said there is no sacred, people who believe that there is no non-material, meaning only material things exist and therefore are pertinent to our um, you know, existence, our understanding, of, our understanding of existence. Once secularists are now pointing to not God, but things are changing. It's not just, I don't believe in God. You see the culture shifting. What is it pointing to? It's pointing to not just non-material, but the self. Paganistic ideals. They have raised this, what I'll call a Rousseauian idea of expressive individualism to the highest and most sacred degree. You see, if you touch what is sacred, you must be punished, severely punished. So people are like, what's going on in the world today? I just don't get it. I see there's so much disconnect in what's going on. So I'm trying to explain that what we do as humans fundamentally is try to establish and understand what is sacred, what is holy. So it should come as no surprise then when you fundamentally believe that humans are defined by the individual psychological core, meaning what I believe to be in my psychological core, that is the utmost highest, meaning the sacred degree of what is truth or what is reality. Anything that changes that or challenges that is deemed as oppressive. And it doesn't matter what age you are, apparently, in today's society. It doesn't matter what age you are, if you come to this understanding that in your deepest, most psychological core, you are this, then that cannot be challenged. This past week, um, someone here sent me an article from NewJersey.com, and I was reading it. In three New Jersey school districts passed policies to inform or notify parents if their child would be gender non-conforming, whether it be name changes or new pronouns, whatever, etc. 
And then when they pass these policies, so remember the policy that these districts or school boards passed was that if a child has some sort of gender non-conforming event in their life, then the policy that was passed was we should inform parents. The New Jersey Attorney General, Matt Platkin, sued these three school districts. This is, quote, his statement on this. I'm going to quote from him. Um, In New Jersey, we will not tolerate any action by schools that threatens the health and safety of our young people. Without question, the discriminatory policies passed by these boards of education, if allowed to go into effect, will harm our kids and pose a severe risk to their safety. Simply put, these policies violate our laws and we will not relent in protecting our LGBTQ plus community, especially our children from discrimination, end quote. So, If you tell parents what is happening with their child, and especially when it's concerning gender expression, apparently it will be deemed as discriminatory and illegal. If this doesn't make sense to you, I don't think you're alone, but you will be chided by school administrators and people of like ilk to educate yourself on the matter on how important it is to support your child through their gender exploration. You think I'm just making words up. Well, I'm not kidding. It's in the handbooks for teachers. It's even in Mayo Clinic's website. You can go to mayoclinic.com. Just look up children and gender identity, and it'll say exactly what I just said. Because this is a new religion, meaning this is what we will deem as sacred. It is what is being declared and adopted as untouchable. The psychological self is the new sacred. And if you try to reason and you get stuck, you're trying to reason through this and you get stuck, it's probably because you haven't fully given yourself into the ideology, so to speak. So people will use threats, name-calling, alternative labeling, and the like to get people in line. Because what is the new sacred? The new sacred isn't really truth. It isn't truth at all. And a lot of people have been correlating this to George Orwell's book, 1984. I'm just going to read you a quick excerpt, see if this relates at all. And again, I'm taking a little bit extra time to put things into context on what we mean when we say the sacred or holy. I'm going to quote from his book, uh, You're a slow learner, Winston, said O'Brien gently. How can I help it, he uh, he blubbered. How can I help seeing what is in front of my eyes? Two and two are four. Sometimes, Winston. Sometimes they are five. Sometimes they are three. Sometimes they are all of them at once. You must try harder. It is not easy to become Sane. And that's just a little excerpt from the book 1984, and this obviously in the context of Winston is in a mental hospital, right? So there are people with white coats trying to teach them what is reality. Two plus two doesn't always equal four. It is 
not truth. So what is it that is sacred? The new sacred isn't truth. The new sacred is compliance. Even if it were this quote-unquote new idea of reality and it would lead us down to the destruction of everything, it doesn't matter. And this is where some have gone all in. And if they're going to go down, they're going to take as many people down with them as they can. I mean, I was reading some historical accounts of even Hitler and what he did in the last week. He knew he lost. And if you read the accounts of what he did in the last week of his life before he killed himself and shot himself in that bunker, uh, he did some things that were just maybe you would think unexplainable. Was he even in reality? You know, He would think that there, there has to be this, more, there's this turn. He had like less than 500,000 troops and you have 2 million Russians marching in toward uh, Berlin where his capital was. And then what did he do? He even like still carried out a lot of his plans. He shot his would-be brother-in-law because of treason that someone else related to him did. He did all these things because it doesn't matter if it's going to lead everyone down to destruction because you need to adopt this new idea of reality. Again, new is in quotes for me. New idea of reality. And then, it doesn't matter. I'll take as many people as I can down. Because this is what I have to adopt. Why? Why is something that we're going to go over for the two weeks that we're going to go over this thing. But for the sacred, for the sacred, I'm going to add another um, idea for us to continue to keep in mind. For the sacred... Blood must be spilled. For the sacred, blood must be spilled. This is a universal truth that whether you realize it or not is the undergirding foundation to why all this ha is happening in this particular manner. So what I wanted to do was give this overture of both parts, one and two of the sermon series that I'm going to do in chapter nine of Hebrews. But before we move on, I thought it was fascinating. Isn't it fascinating that for some reason people believe that on earth we can house or somehow represent what is not earthly? So for some reason people across the earth believe that the earth or the material can somehow house or represent what is not earthly. Meaning through the secular we can have a glimpse or be connected to the sacred or the holy. That's the passage this morning. The letter to the Hebrews was written for the Jewish believers in mind, but it doesn't discount the fact that it still points to this essential belief that there is a way to get connected or to connect to the sacred through the secular. And why do we think that? Why is it across the spectrum we think that? It's because God has shown us from Genesis, creation is a handiwork or is the handiwork of a supernatural creator, meaning the natural is under the supernatural. Nature is not God. Mother nature is not God. There is no Gaia. No supernatural force in the earth itself, but it's connected to the supernatural. That's what everyone wants to know now. How is it connected? Now we have these fiction writers, even movie you know, script writers, uh, purporting or kind of promulgating this idea of the multiverse theory. 
all these movies, not just comic book movies, but all these other movies are promoting this multiverse theory and they're playing off of this. But even if you were to hold, it's not true, but even if you were to hold this multiverse theory, it's on this basic premise that something outside of the natural world created or had a hand in or somehow maintains this natural world. Because in the end, the pure secularists, meaning the material world is all there is, would have a hard time sustaining the belief that science is all there is. I'm sure a few decades ago, people would somehow believe that science is all there is. But then you would realize to understand science, you need to presuppose math and logic. Math and logic to get science. Science doesn't explain math and logic. For the Big Bang to have even happened, people were like, oh, the Big Bang, the Big Bang. Even for the Big Bang to have happened, you still needed the laws of physics in place to have that. Science, then, is only a discovery of what has been already there all along. It doesn't explain all things. So it comes down to, then, this idea. I'm going to make one little jump, and I hope you can take it. What is the sacred? How do we know for sure that we're not just prisoners looking at shadows in a cave, never having seen the sun, as Plato would write about? And it just so happens that in the beginning, God set an earthly place apart of holiness. And the example that the author of Hebrews uses is the tent. And the tent means the tabernacle. For the Christian, the answer is there. How do you know something is sacred? How do you know something is holy? Can you just discover it? Because if you did, how would you know that you discovered the thing that you think you did? How do you know it's not just something else that's secular? And for God's people, it's because God brought his people out of darkness into the light. He brought them out of Egypt and he showed them a layout. And now the layout again isn't the substance, but it's a shadow. So the author assumes his listeners or his readers was already familiar with this layout. After all, they spent their whole lives around the Levitical system. I don't think we necessarily are, but this is why he moves on pretty quickly inside the elements of the tabernacle, saying even in verse 5 of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So I won't either to whatever extent, but I believe we should go over some details that were briefly mentioned. So I'm going to try my best to go through as many of these verses as possible. But first and most importantly for us to know is that he denotes and he separates two sections in the sanctuary. Number one, we have the holy place. And number two, we have the most holy place. Now, when it comes to this understanding of the sacred, he wants to point out two places, the holy place and the most holy place. For the Israelite, this would be the sectioning off of the holy from the secular. And what were those elements? And before I even go into that, I want to remind you of what method this author has used from the very beginning and how it's not changed. It's typical for the author to go into comparisons to angels and Jesus Christ, Moses and Jesus Christ, Joshua to Jesus Christ, Aaron to Jesus Christ, Melchizedek to Jesus Christ. He never, and when he does it, he never lowers these figures. He doesn't say, oh, Moses is like, you guys think he's all that. He's, he's, he's just meh, right? He doesn't say that. 
he actually says, actually, Moses is incredibly great. He may be even greater than you think. And he lifts up and exalts Moses to his rightful position. But what is pointed out after that? It's the supremacy of Christ even over these figures, angels, Moses, Aaron, Melchizedek. Here is this figure. Here is this figure. He is truly great. Truly. Maybe even more than you realize. But here is Jesus, and he is superior. This process is not abandoned when we get to chapter 9. He continues on with this logic, and so we must not miss that. And so let's continue. What is the tent or the tabernacle? It was a sizable tent. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. There is precision, because God is a God of detail and precision. He's not one of anarchy or chaos, right? And there was only one gate into the tabernacle, and that was the gate in the east. It was 30 feet wide, and it was seven and a half feet high. There was only one door. There's only one door, not many doors, one door meaning there's always only been one door to enter the sacred. And there's only one door now. Some people think that Christianity is just way too exclusive. How can you say that there's only one door? It just doesn't seem fair. And first of all, by whose standard? Yours? Because some people wonder why there is a door at all. Why is there even a door? Do we even deserve a door? Who says you deserve a door? There is one door, and God showed this blueprint to his people long ago. And around 1,500 years later, Jesus Christ would come and say, I am the door. And after you enter the door, you would pass through the brazen altar, the bronze basin, other pieces of furniture for cleansing, and then you would get to the holy place. And once you entered inside the holy place, the author mentions the lampstand, the table, and the bread of presence. First, on the left side would be, as you entered, the left side would be the golden lampstand. The seven-lit golden lampstand with pure olive oil that would be there for the fire. This golden lampstand was made out of solid gold. And then you would see on the right side the table of the bread of presence. And this table was made of acacia wood, again, overlaid with gold. It was three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and about two and a quarter feet high off the ground. And every Sabbath, meaning every Saturday, they laid 12 loaves, one for every tribe in Israel, six and two rows like this. And at the end of the week, the priests ate it, and only the priests were allowed to eat it. Then continuing on, if you go to the center you would see the table or the altar of incense. Again, it was made of acacia wood and it was sheathed in gold. It was one and a half feet square, three feet high. And on this, you would place the burning coals from the outside brazen altar in the courtyard. You would take that and you would place it in the altar of incense. If we just take these three elements, we would see a picture of what the tabernacle pointed to in the holy place. We haven't gone into the most holy place yet, but in the holy place. Something or someone would act as light. Something or someone would feed us. And something or someone 
would intercede for us. The light, the bread, and the incense meaning intercession. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the word made flesh. So when the scripture says, and he quotes it in Matthew, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, we know what he meant when he also said, I am the bread of life. And we've already gone over how Jesus is the high priest and is continually interceding for us. So the three symbols in the holy place, light, life, and intercession, are all foreshadowing the one who would come and fulfill these things for God's people. So we are told to look at this in these verses in this progression. The outer courts, we saw the brazen altar, the bronze basin, where the sacrifices took place, where you were clean, you were cleansed, you would do this ritual, and then you would enter the holy place where you would experience God's light, God's life, God's intercession. Now we go one more step into or through the veil into the most holy place. The holy of holies, or the most holy place, is a perfect square, 15 by 15 feet, and there was only one piece of furniture there, the Ark of the Covenant. In it contained Aaron's rod that budded, it contained manna, and it contained the tablets of the law. We won't get into that because the author doesn't get into that, but on top of this was the mercy seat, and it's called the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat, you saw two ends of this lid, which was called the mercy seat. The ark had a lid. It's called the mercy seat. There are two cherubim, that means angels, whose wings will be stretched out, almost touching but not touching. And this mercy seat was made out of gold. The angels were made out of solid gold. And it was between the wings of those angels on the mercy seat that God would meet man. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, this is what he says, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. But now God no longer communes with men between the wings of the cherubim. He communes with men no longer on top of a golden mercy seat. He communes with men that come in the name of whom? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. God gave distinct instructions for the ark's lid in Exodus chapter 25, and it was called the kaporet in Hebrew. Kaporet in Hebrew. When the Old Testament, though, was translated into Latin, this word was translated as, caporet was translated as propitiatorium. It is the place of propitiation. This is what we know to be the mercy seat. The mercy seat would point to a propitiation that would be once and for all, that through this mercy seat, we could enter and commune with God. That's the first five verses. 
These preparations in verse 6, having thus been made, the priests go into the first section or regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. This first section was called the holy place, and they went in there every day. They had to go every day to trim the lampstand to make sure it's always lit. They had to go every day to make sure the incense was lit on the altar of incense, and they went in every Sabbath to change the 12 loaves of bread. So they were in and out every day, every day, every day. That's what the picture is. It's a never-ceasing work. Again, this is the perfect picture of Jesus Christ who does not cease being the light to us, who does not cease being the bread to us, and he does not cease interceding for us. He is always the light. He is always our food, and he is always interceding on our behalf. It is perpetual. It is continual. It is unceasing. And so... When you recognize this, aren't you glad that you have Christ who will never stop this priestly work every day, every day, every day, doing these things on our behalf? Verse 7, but into the second and only, into the second only the high priest goes, and he goes once a year. That was the day of atonement. It's Yom Kippur, if you know, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So we know that God had a relationship with Israel. But every time Israel sinned, what happened to the relationship? Every time you sin, what happens to any relationship? So if I sin against someone, what happens to that relationship? What we mean by sin is we mean that the relationship is broken. It's severed. So they had to come up and give sacrifices to get reconnected. But all throughout the year, the sacrifices, you would maybe sometimes forget, oh, I don't know if I really gave a sacrifice for the sin. There are unintentional sins that you may have committed. And so this Yom Kippur, this Day of Atonement, was a grand day for people because it was made to known to them, like, in case you forgot a sin, guess what? This Day of Atonement, we could get it. Like, all of it, done. Don't worry about it. The ones that you didn't do a direct sacrifice for, you gather here, and it will be covered on this Day of Atonement for the entire nation. It was a great day. Great day of liberty, especially for your conscience. I mean, you knew, you like, throughout the year, you'd be racking up sins. Some of them you remembered, but a lot of them you didn't remember. So if you were a believer back then, you really longed for the Day of Atonement because at least during that time, you knew you'd be free and you'd have right standing before God. Sin severs relationship, relationships, and sin severed the relationship. And only forgiveness through sacrifice could put it together. So there needed to be a sacrifice to pick up all the things that the people had forgotten. That was the Day of Atonement. Now, let's look at the ritual. Very early in the morning, the priest would rise. He cleansed himself by washing, and he washed himself thoroughly. Then he put on robes reserved for this day, the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is what I'm talking about. They're robes of glory. They're beautiful. They're fancy robes. There's an ephod, right? And the robe of ephod was very particular because on the shoulders were two large stones of onyx. And each of those stones, so there are two large stones, and each of those stones had six of the tribe's names engraved on them. Not only that, there was a breastplate. 
And on the breastplate was also 12 precious stones, each of them having engraved one name of a tribe. So what is symbolic here? As the high priest enters the most holy place once a year, what he takes upon his shoulders and upon his breast is the names of God's people. This is the perfect picture of Jesus Christ, who not only takes us in his heart, meaning he cares for us, but he can carry us on his shoulders. He's not only willing, he's able. He is powerful. He is strong enough. So you could imagine then, if you were a high priest back in the Old Testament times, he symbolically carried the people of God in his heart and his shoulders, and I'm sure he wanted to bring all the people. I'm sure they probably wanted to bring all the people and give them all access to God. Maybe he even ached to do it himself. He had it in his heart because that's the name of the people that he bore. To give access to God, that's what he really wants. That's the purpose of all of this. But he could not actualize it. But then that would point to a picture of Jesus who would come and who was willing and able. High priest would be cleaned up. He put on his robes. He'd become his daily sacrifices because he had to do this whole routine. One writer would write, it's very likely he would have already slaughtered 22 different animals by the time he even reached the event known as atonement. It was a very, very bloody, very busy thing that the high priest would do every day, especially leading up to the atonement. And that's why there's a verse that says, and not without taking blood. His point is that blood is the medium of approach to God. And this fact underscores the importance of the reference to Christ's blood that will be in the subsequent argument in the coming week. So when the first readers of the letter to the Hebrews, who would have been familiar to everything that I've said, like everything that I explained, the Hebrew listener or reader would have been familiar with. They would have understood this. Here is where it gets deeper. Verse 8. He says the Holy Spirit indicates. Now, they all knew the stuff from verses 1 through 7. Verse 8 is now going to be a revelation through the Holy Spirit to the people of God now. This is what it says. As long as the first section was intact, meaning these provisions by the priests were taking place, if you think about it and if you realize it, if you have your ears open, that really means that the access to God was not yet available to the rest of the congregation. Sure, the priest really wanted to bring the people in, but he couldn't. That means that the access was denied. The veil or curtain was still up. So even the priestly duties, as long as it's intact, the veil is up. And while the veil is up, you did not have access to God. In fact, you read this in the language that the priestly arrangements also acted as a barrier to the presence of God. So that seems a little more forceful. Yes, you will get your, forgi- your sins forgiven in the Day of Atonement, but after, even after that, could you go into the most holy place? Even though your sins were forgiven, could you go into the most holy place? The answer is no. And where does God commune with man? In the most holy place. So you couldn't necessarily commune with God. So the first section acts as a spatial reminder, even a metaphor, 
of the first covenant being in effect. This is an illustration of the old age or the Old Testament. And he's saying this is the present age, right? He said it in parentheses, this is the present age. This is now in the process of dissolution. Because why? In verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. This only dealt with the outward portions or parts of sin. It dealt with food and drinks and washings. You had regulations for the body until when? The Reformation. Until you have the substance. Once the foreshadowing, now the substance. Once the body, but now also the body and what? The conscience, the heart. You could not completely commune with God through the Old Testament because the heart needed to be changed. And the heart or conscience is not changed, that's not changed, would make someone necessarily unfit to truly serve God. Sure, the Day of Atonement brought temporary relief, but it was short-lived. Some of us, perhaps even today, grew up thinking like this in the church. You go to church, you feel good. You feel like God listened to your prayers. You maybe even confessed your sins. You go right back home. What happens? You sin. You done messed up. Your relationship again has been severed. So we still live under this kind of thought process, this kind of rule. Our relief is short-lived because we don't understand what Christ has come to do for us. Again, we'll go over this more in detail next week. But here is where we see that Christ has come not only to purify our bodies, but renew our hearts as well. So what happens when your heart is renewed? What happens when your conscience is purified as well as the body? You can now serve the living God, meaning you can actually commune with the living God. Service is communion. And through Christ, your body is cleansed and your heart is changed. That's why you can truly enter the sacred, the most holy place. Because the most holy place is what every single person, I don't care who you are, if you are human, the most holy place is what you were made you were made to enter the holy place where God resides you could not before but you see through Jesus Christ completely and finally we are now made fit fashioned and formed to go into the holy place it should be no surprise when we see when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross the temple curtain was torn in two. It was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning this is not man-made. This is something that heaven did. And the whole, most holy place was laid open. What was that symbolic of? It meant that Jesus Christ made a way for his people to enter into communion with God. This is a truly revelatory, astonishing truth 
that the writer gives the people of Hebrews. And yeah, we might not be Jewish, we might not understand the ritual, but I hope you truly understand what is going on in the world today. People want access to the sacred. People want access to the holy. But we're looking in the wrong places because that is not what God has designed. God has designed for us to go into the holy and he has made one way. And that way is Jesus Christ. If you repent, meaning you turn from your false ideas and turn to Jesus Christ and believe that he is Lord and Savior, God shows us that he is faithful to his promise and he will change your heart. So praise be to God for opening your ears and your eyes to hear and understand what God's plan is for his people. How do we get into the sacred? Yes, the answer is Jesus Christ. This is not the Old Testament. This is now the New Testament. It is the new covenant that Christ has bought for us with his blood. Praise be to God, our merciful and gracious Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. We thank you for the revelation that we have in your word and through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that this truth will be made manifest and evident in our lives, in our expressions, in our beliefs, in our praises and service to you more and more every day as your Holy Spirit strengthens those whom you have called to your presence. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our hearts to God. And let's pray that we have faith and understanding to really receive the truth that God gives us in his word, that Jesus Christ, he is the way. And if he is the way, then we have access to God. That means in every single area of life, we no longer need to look for what is sacred and holy because God has given it to us. And so if there is maybe a portion in your life where you have tried to gain access to the sacred through secular means or you believe that the world has shown you something that is holy, which is untrue, and that's why we say repent and ask God for forgiveness. He is gracious and merciful and turn to him and follow his ways and serve him all the days of your life. Let's pray.